Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 135 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Howard W. Cox. Howard is a former federal prosecutor, criminal investigator, and senior intelligence service officer. After graduating from Georgetown University Law Center, he served as a trial attorney for the U.S. Army's Judge Advocate General's Corps, followed by many other investigative and prosecutorial assignments throughout the federal government. His final position before retiring from federal service was as the Assistant Inspector General for Investigations at CIA. I invited Howard onto the podcast to discuss his newly published book, American Traitor, General James Wilkinson's Betrayal of the Republic and Escape from Justice. It's the story of the highest-ranking federal employee to ever be investigated for espionage, the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army. Wilkinson served for more than 40 years under America's first four presidents, all while acting as a secret agent for the government of Spain. But before we continue, I've got something special to share with all of you, something I believe you're going to find as fascinating as I do. It's the whale hunting newsletter from investigative journalists Tom Wright and Bradley Hope. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you might remember Bradley, who was my guest for episode 87. I think I have a good grasp of what piques your interest, and I can tell you that whale hunting will take you on a deep dive into the worlds of money and power that you just can't find elsewhere. Uncovering the infamous 1MDB scandal, the world's biggest financial fraud, was like a red pill moment for Tom and Bradley. It revealed to them how the world really worked and how the strings of power are pulled by elusive figures. So they started writing whale hunting about the world's richest and most dangerous individuals, often unknown to the public. You can also follow the new whale hunting podcast where Bradley and Tom share what's got them talking each week from headlines to underworld gossip, as well as interviews with reporters, spies, investigators, and the occasional criminal. It's not to be missed. I'm a subscriber myself and trust me, whale hunting will change the way you see the world. But don't just take my word for it. Head over to whalehunting.com projectbrazen.com to sign up. And to listen to the podcast, just search for Whale Hunting in your favorite podcast app. Howard, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad to hear it. I have to admit up front that I have not studied early American history from you know late 18th, early 19th century nearly as much as I focused on the 20th century. So as I was reading your book, I was learning almost everything about this story for the first time. And it really is incredible. Wilkinson is a hidden figure when it comes to history. He was a villain through and through. And most Americans today don't even know what he did or why he might have been important at that time. Yeah, I, I can understand that totally. But luckily, we're here to help shed some light on that. And you've done a tremendous amount of work to bring this story to light to modern audiences, I think. And that was one of the delights I had in, in, in doing this, that there weren't a lot of books about Wilkinson or mentions of him. When we talk about the founding fathers, most of them failed miserably in supervising Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. And so I think this provides an interesting insight in how oversight and command relations were done in the early American Republic. 
Yeah, I agree totally. It was very frustrating for me to read how he just continued to get away with everything that he did time and time again. And of course, the kind of the structures were not yet in place. The institutions had not really been built to catch this kind of thing. But, you know, the leaders of that time were in so many ways very smart and capable and understood the threats. So it's really unfortunate that he was able to get away with everything, as we're going to get into, I'm sure. Yep. So what was it that led you to research and write this book in the first place? My undergraduate degree was in history, and although I knew I was going to go on and become an attorney, I've always loved history, and I've always maintained an interest in, in reading about history. And so one of my first jobs after I became a lawyer was going into the Army and the Judge Advocate General Corps, and I was a trial attorney. And for the most part, I'm representing you know, corporals and privates, and I was wondering, who was the highest-ranking Army officer ever to be court-martialed? And I checked it out, and it was James Wilkinson was the highest-ranking official, military official, ever be court-martialed. He was the commanding general of the Army. So I kind of like, hey, make a note of that and, and move on. So when I got out of the Army, I eventually went to work for the Defense Department Inspector General's office where I was investigating contract fraud. And one of the aspects of contract fraud is contractors bribing DOD officials and I wondered, who's the highest-ranking DOD official who ever accepted bribes from contractors? And doing a little checking again, it ended up being James Wilkinson. Among the hmm. many misdeeds that he did as the commanding general was, he took bribes from contractors. And as a result of that, there were many of his troops died of malnutrition because he's accepting bad food from contractors. So I made mm -hmm. a note of that. And then when I went to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, Again, I wondered, who was the highest-ranking government official who's ever been charged with being a spy for a foreign power? It was James Wilkinson. <laughs> so when I just kept – and then, you know, finally when I retired, I moved <coughs> to a, a place called Frederick, Maryland, and Wilkinson was court-martialed here in Frederick. So that's sort of just like – there's just too many coincidences here. This is a book that needs to be written. Yeah, so those yeah. are the primary reasons why I chose Wilkinson as a subject of the first history book I ever wrote. Wow. You know, I ask this question of almost every author that I talk to, and I think this is the most clear-cut example of, you know, fate decreeing that you needed to write this book that I've ever heard. Yep. I agree completely. So let's go back to Wilkinson's early life then. So he was born in Maryland, I believe. He was the son of a, of a wealthy tobacco plantation family in Maryland. The trouble was he was not the firstborn son, so the family needed to find an appropriate job for him that was befitting some of his social class, and they sent him to medical school in Philadelphia. And at the time, this is 1773, 1775, the medical school in Philadelphia was the only medical school in the United States. And so he goes to medical school there, but simultaneous with being in medical school at that time, you have the Continental Congress that is meeting in Philadelphia, and he sort of gets the patriot bug. And so when he graduates from the medical school, he comes back here to Frederick County, Maryland to open up a practice of medicine. But uh, at the time, most of the people in Frederick were of German heritage. He wasn't German, he wasn't local, he didn't speak German. And he decided that rather than practice medicine, he would join a militia unit in anticipation of joining George Washington's Continental Army up in Boston. The trouble was the local militia unit was made of riflemen. 
and he just felt that he didn't fit in all that well with roughback woodsmen, so he decided to join a militia unit that was located in Georgetown that was made of wealthy socialites. And so he hmm. commuted by, by horseback 40 miles to go join and drill with this unit. The trouble was, since he was a stranger there as well, he didn't get a commission with them either. Washington decided to lay siege to the British Army in Boston. Wilkinson went on his own dime up to Boston, hung around the Army for a couple of months, until finally he was able to sweet-talk his way into commission with a New Hampshire regiment. Washington was looking for educated gentlemen to be officers, and Wilkinson seemingly fit that bill. So he became the, the, the captain of a company of riflemen from the state of New Hampshire. Okay, I see. So he's already a captain and he's a doctor, but he's far younger than we would think of in our modern times. He's only like 18 or 19 years old at this point. He's 18 he? years old at this point. Okay, yeah. And so, but he has got his wish now. He's an officer in a New Hampshire regiment that he's a complete stranger to. And he's got absolutely no military background other than a little bit of, of drilling that he did with the Georgetown militia unit. But he's in command. He's going to show these people he's in command. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that with this very first command, he kind of set the tone because things went very poorly for his subordinates right off the bat once he was in charge. Yes, so he owes his first formation, gives orders, and they basically look wondering, who is this guy? And he threatens to take out his sword and run through every member of his unit until they start obeying him. And the individual who had raised the unit was a former Rogers Rangers from the French and Indian War. He resented the fact that he raised his regiment. Here is this Wilkinson, this 18-year-old kid from Maryland, who's in command, and he gives Wilkinson a hard time, and Wilkinson has him court-martialed. So the very first order he gives results in a court-martial of a subordinate, and George Washington likes this because Wilkinson is seeking to instill discipline into the troops, which is exactly the message that Washington wanted to send. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, initially they're kind of not realizing what they're dealing with, of course, because they haven't had much experience with him yet. But how did that go? Did I mean, did he instill that discipline or did he just turn the troops against him as he was their commander? He was successful in, in uh, providing some degree of discipline. The trouble was that at the time, uh, Washington needed to send troops to Canada to reinforce the U.S. Army that was in Canada in 17, late 1775, early 1776, and they were slowly being driven out of Canada by the British. So by the spring of 1776, Wilkinson leads his company up to join up with Benedict Arnold, who was one of the senior commanders in Canada at the time, and Wilkinson approaches Arnold and concludes, hey, I'd like to join your staff. So the only time Wilkinson was commanding troops prior to the time later on when he's named the commanding general is the 60 days between the time he left Boston and the time he got up to Montreal. He never fired a shot. He never led troops in combat. But he was obsequious. And Arnold was looking for a trained staff officer, and Wilkinson seemingly fit the bill. Yeah, I know that he, throughout his career, had this tendency to kind of find the most powerful and influential, I don't know if I call him a mentor, but a patriarch, maybe? Patron? Yes. To, and he just glommed onto that guy until he didn't need him anymore. So that started with Arnold, then, in that case? It started with Arnold, and then as Arnold leaves, is finally driven out of Canada, 
Arnold and who are considered the last two American soldiers on Canadian soil. Oh, wow. Arnold turns to Wilkinson's, shoot your horse. We don't want to leave any of our, our assets behind. And so they both shoot their horses. They get in a boat, and they're the last Americans to leave Canada in the spring of 1776. Wow. I'd forgotten that part somehow. So he's not off to the worst start, but did he, I know that he tended to make enemies out of his former patrons. So at what point did things kind of fall apart with Arnold? Well, when he and Arnold get down to Fort Ticonderoga in New York, Wilkinson sees an opportunity, again, being obsequious, to jump to a higher-ranking officer. And so he joins the staff of General Horatio Gates. He leaves Arnold at that time under good terms, but later on, Gates and Arnold have fights, and Wilkinson is more than willing to betray whatever confidences he had with Arnold in order to ingratiate himself greater with, uh, uh, with, with General Horatio Gates. So in addition to being obsequious, the other thing that Wilkinson was constantly drawn to was intrigue. Officers that were plotting with other officers to go against their commander, such as George Washington, Gates was typical of that. And Wilkinson was more than willing to work with Gates to undermine Washington. Hmm. Yeah, he has no real loyalties throughout his life except to himself, it doesn't seem like. And absolutely not. He basically would betray anyone he would work for, with, or near in order to advance his career. So eventually, in the fall of 1776, George Washington is being driven out of New York. He's driven out of New Jersey. He uh, ends up taking the what's left of the Continental Army into Pennsylvania, and he calls on other commanders to come and join him to reinforce him so that he can defend against the, the British. And so his senior commander, George Washington's senior commander at the time, was a guy by the name of Charles Lee. He was a former British officer like Horatio Gates. And Lee was very discontent with Washington as the commanding general and started to communicate with other generals who were similarly dissatisfied with Washington's leadership. And so Gates was one of those people, and he sends Wilkinson with messages to Lee basically to, to ferment a rebellion of American officers against George Washington. So Wilkinson finds Lee and in an inn in New Jersey, rather than joining up with Washington, he's dragging his feet, and, and Lee's having an affair with a prostitute that night in this inn in New Jersey. And so Wilkinson's there, he delivers this message from Gates, and he's invited to stay for breakfast, and at breakfast the next morning, Wilkinson looks out the window, and they're surrounded by a British raiding party who's there to capture Charles Lee. And so they come into the house. They basically capture everybody who's there except Wilkinson, who hides up the chimney. <laughs> Incredible. And so after the British carry off Lee, Wilkinson goes back to Gates and says, hey, Lee is gone. And Gates recognizes that he's going to have to, at least for the time period, he's now the number two officer in the Army, and he's going to have to try to support Washington. So unfortunately, now we're heading towards the Battle of Trenton in December of 1776. Gates, for all intents and purposes, is the number two man in the army, deserts the army. He decides, I don't like this. I'm going to go to Congress and tell them there's a better way to run the army. 
And Wilkinson then decides, I'll stick with Washington. So he joins Washington crossing the Delaware River. He's present then as an aide to one of Washington's other generals at the Battle of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton. And he's now somewhat back in good graces. And Gates, however, decides he's going to lobby to become the commander of the Northern Army. And that's the army that would face the British coming down from Canada in 1777. And so when Gates gets that assignment, Wilkinson once again sucks up to Gates and is named Gates' senior aide to assist Gates in defending northern New York against the British invasion. Yeah, things are changing quickly here, but is this where his relationship with Gates also goes sour? Was that the point or did it come later? This happens a little bit later. Benedict Arnold, for all intents and purposes, most historians agree today, won the two battles of Saratoga, which was the most important battle in the revolution because by winning that particular battle, the French came in on that side. And Gates couldn't stand sharing credit with Arnold. And after the first battle was done, Wilkinson is assisting Gates in basically foul-mouthing Arnold. Arnold doesn't have a command, but he hangs around for the second battle, and without orders, he leads the American troops to victory. And so as a result of that, Arnold is wounded a second time. He no longer is able to have a field command. And at the time, the tradition was that when we win a big battle, the commanding general, in this case Gates, would pick a senior officer to take news of that victory to the Continental Congress, to George Washington, and he picks Wilkinson as the messenger and recommends that Wilkinson get a two-level promotion to Brigadier General. And so as a result of this, Wilkinson is now the youngest general in the Continental Army, never having commanded troops in combat, never having led troops in combat, but he's now a 19-year-old Brigadier General who's a senior aide to Horatio Gates. That's incredible. All this comes from just the right exposure to the right people at the right times for him. And I don't think anybody realizes yet the consequences, the long-term consequences for America for promoting this guy so quickly. That's correct. And so Gates is now in a position where he thinks he should be the commanding general of the U.S. Army. And now Wilkinson, he's engaging in something known as the Conway Cabal, which is basically a variety of officers and congressmen who weren't happy with Washington. And basically what Gates tries to do is foment discontent by other officers. And so he sends Wilkinson down to the Continental Congress, and Wilkinson is aware of what Gates is doing. And one night, Wilkinson gets drunk with the staff of officers who are loyal to Washington. And in a drunken disclosure, Wilkinson discloses the fact that Gates is working behind the scenes to have Washington removed. And Washington, in a masterful piece of political leadership, basically exposes this based upon Wilkinson's drunken disclosure. And at some point, then Gates then says, oh, no, this isn't my idea. This is Wilkinson's idea. And he tries to blame the whole, blame the whole thing on Wilkinson. Washington isn't buying it. He basically calls Gates a liar. And when Wilkinson finds out now that Gates has thrown him under the bus, Wilkinson challenges Gates to a duel. <laughs> oh, man. 
And so the first time they, they go to duel, it doesn't happen. But later on, there's a second opportunity for where Wilkinson and, 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 and Gates have a, a continuing falling out. This time they actually have a duel. And the only time I could figure out that whenever uh, Wilkinson fired a weapon in anger, was when he had this duel with Gates, he fired it at his commanding officer, and he missed. <laughs> wow. Wow. But, but as a result of this, Gates is on the out, and Wilkinson realizes he can't. Virtually every other officer in the Continental Army objected to the fact that Wilkinson had gotten this unwarranted promotion. And in a few instances where he acted in an honorable manner, he resigns his commission and leaves the Army. Hmm. Okay. I see. So... What does he go back to then? I mean, his, his doctor practice, or does he strike out on his own as a businessman, or, or what exactly? Well, he married well. At this particular period of time, he married into the Biddle family, who were wealthy Quakers from Philadelphia. He married a woman 13 years his senior by the name of, of Ann Biddle. And the Biddles were heavily invested at the time, right after the Revolution, in land in Western Virginia in an area that ultimately became the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And so Wilkin decides to take his wife and his young children out to Kentucky and make his fortune as a businessman in the wilderness of Kentucky. Okay, that takes a certain type of person. And I know that he was not any more of a gifted businessman ultimately than he was a gifted leader, really. So what kind of struggles did he face once he got out there? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Wilkinson was not a good business person. And the trouble that they had economically at the time in Kentucky was that Kentucky was part of the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia. They were talking about breaking off and becoming their own Commonwealth because they basically felt that Richmond ignored the interests of the people in Kentucky. And the problem for the people in Kentucky was to the extent that you wanted to engage in commerce, most of the roads did not really allow you to have two-way commerce back east. And so the way you would get your goods to market was take them down the Ohio River, take them down the Mississippi River, and sell them in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. The problem was the Spanish controlled New Orleans at the time, and they didn't want an American presence. So they basically shut down the Mississippi River to business people in Kentucky. And one of the things that, that your readers need to understand was in, in, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the United States was surrounded by two countries. We had Great Britain up in Canada, and you had every place else. You had Spain. Spain controlled mm -hmm. everything west of the Mississippi. Spain controlled the Floridas. And they basically put a chokehold on Americans being getting access to either the Gulf of Mexico or the Mississippi River. And so Wilkinson decides in 1787, he's going to break this deadlock. He's going to, on behalf of a, of a consortium of Kentucky businessmen, he's going to take a variety of goods down the Mississippi and bribe his way through the Spanish government to grant him a monopoly to sell goods in Mississippi. And in return for allowing him to sell goods in Mississippi, Wilkinson said, basically, I'm going to go back up to Kentucky, and I'm going to do work with other senior Kentucky officials, and we're going to lobby to break away from the Commonwealth of Virginia and join the Spanish Empire. And so this was basically what was known at the time as the Spanish Conspiracy, where a variety of Western officials 
were working with the Spanish. Some of them were doing it for pay to break off the Western states and have them, rather than being part of the United States, have them have some sort of a relationship with Spain that would give them access to the port in New Orleans. My gosh. And so Wilkinson works for about two years, but unfortunately, he's a terrible businessman. And he's still losing money. Part of his problem was he lived very, uh, very well, and he tried to provide his wife with the best kind of lifestyle that they could in the wilderness, and he could never make a go of business. So he approaches the Spanish in 1789 and basically says, put me on the Spanish payroll. I wanted to be a paid undercover agent of the Spanish government. And he takes an oath to the Spanish king, and he basically says, if you give me money, I will continue to lobby to get Kentucky to join Spain, but I'll also provide you with information on economic espionage, on what the United States is doing in attempting to break the Spanish lockdown of the Mississippi River. And so from 1789 until 1791, he basically is, is a failing businessman, but a paid agent of Spain. So how essential is this for them? Like, is this a dream come true that somebody like Wilkinson would come up to them? Or is, are they just like, well, let's kind of, you know, keep him on the back burner and see if it develops into anything? I mean, how important is this to their control over that region? The Spanish were primarily concerned with that the United States would somehow encroach on a Spanish border. And there were a variety of private expeditions at the time that private individuals would launch against the Spanish government to try to overthrow the Spanish government in Florida and in Mexico. And so Wilkinson provided an insight as to what was going on. But as to first-class espionage, Wilkinson had access to a lot of information. And they recognized that, but they were more than willing to put him on the payroll. Okay. I see. Did it ultimately work out well for them? Was he a a productive agent as far as the Spanish were concerned during this period? The interesting thing was that they recognized the only reason why Wilkinson is working for them was ego and, and money. They never thought that he was a devoted Spanish agent. When One of the things that we learned in, in, in looking at why people become spies, there's an acronym that the intelligence community uh, uses that is MICE, M-I-C-E, and usually then people become spies because of M, money, I, ideology, C, coercion, or E, ego. And the Spanish knew that the, uh, Wilkinson's motivation was money and ego, and they basically knew, hey, he wasn't really going to do them a lot of good, but he was in a, an important businessman in Kentucky, and it was worthwhile having him on the payroll. Where that changes is in 1791, he still doesn't have enough money, and he decides he's going to rejoin the army as a senior army officer, and now he can provide the Spanish with firsthand espionage information as to what the U.S. Army is doing that might have an impact on the Spanish Empire. Yeah, that, that's quite a different story from, a at that time, a private citizen out on the frontier you know, in a fairly contested area, that's a lot different when he's now a serving officer, again, working for the crown, you know, in secret. And, and one of the things that, I, that always got me was that in, in 1791, the United States was engaged in what was called the Northwest Indian Wars. And they were basically fighting the Miami tribes, the Shawnee tribes, and what is today Ohio. And the United States was getting its butt kicked royally by the Indians back mm -hmm. at that particular period of time. And so Washington and his cabinet wanted to pick 
you know, someone who could be a senior officer, and they pick Wilkinson. And you, know, you sit back and wonder, how could George Washington, who knew that <coughs> Wilkinson's Revolutionary War record was absolutely terrible, how could you in your right mind pick a guy who had never commanded troops and make him like the number three officer in the United States Army? And for the most part, it, you know, Washington, who knew a good officer when he saw one, the main reason I think he picked Wilkinson was a lot of the recruits for the Army were going to be coming at the time from Kentucky. Wilkinson was from Kentucky, and Wilkinson was relatively young. Most of the other officers that were being considered were former Revolutionary Army officers, and by the early 1790s, they were too old too infirm or too drunk to command troops. Mm. Wilkinson, who was relatively young, had connections with the Kentucky leadership, and so they decided to take a chance on Wilkinson. Okay, I see. So it's not because of his perceived combat abilities or anything like that. It's just for he, these connections and recruiting ability. Right. He had no combat capabilities. Yeah, right. Exactly. Do you think that Washington had a like kind of a blind spot for him, or was it just like a, a necessary compromise under the circumstances? I think it was more than necessary compromise. And also Washington, who is a brand new president, he's got a brand new country to run. Military just wasn't all that important. Even though we were regularly being slaughtered by the Indians in Ohio, he had a lot of other things to worry about. So I, I think he lost the eye on the ball when it came to picking Wilkinson as a senior commander. Right, right. Because the army at this point is drastically shrunk from the days of the revolution, right? There's yes. like three, 3,000 guys in the whole army or something like that. That's it. And, and, and to give you an idea that at the time, in order to court-martial someone, you needed 13 officers sitting in a general court-martial. There are fewer than 30 officers in the entire United States Army. And so for intents and purposes, you couldn't convene a court-martial because the officers were scattered all over the frontier or in, in headquarters in New York or Philadelphia or Washington. So there are very, very few people. So one of the issues is they're going to be raising new troops. A lot of them are coming from Kentucky, and Wilkinson's got some Kentucky connections. In 1792, Washington finally decides we need a new commanding general of the Army and they once again go through all the general officers that are left over, and they pick Anthony Wayne, who was one of the better Revolutionary War generals. He wasn't a drunk. And Wilkinson is beside himself that he didn't get to be named the commanding general. As Wayne spends two years getting the army ready to go out and fight the Indians in Ohio, Wilkinson spends those two years undercutting Wayne at every opportunity he can. He, div he divides the officer corps against Wayne. He kills the contractors that they needed to be able to, uh, to support the troops. Hey, go slow on delivering because the hope is, is that Wayne will fail. And then when Wayne fails, I'm the last guy standing that will be named the commanding general of the army. Yeah, unbelievable that he played with national security like that out of his you know ego trip. But I oh, guess not absolutely. the first time that's happened. And you know, Wayne finally wakes up to the fact that Wilkinson is doing, and Wayne is convinced that at one point Wilkinson tried to murder him. That, that, that Wilkinson's attempts oh, wow. to stop Wayne were, were reduced to the fact that uh, he believed that at one point Wilkinson tried to murder him. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when the, the tree fell yes, on his exactly. tent, Yes, exactly. They I were think. on campaign, and a tree fell on, on uh, Wayne's tent. And Wayne was convinced that Wilkinson was the guy who cut down the tree. Yeah. Yeah, 
like a, quite a bit of paranoia there, but maybe not completely out of character for him to get ahead by any means necessary. Absolutely not. So by 1794, Wayne has successfully defeated the Indians, and Wilkinson goes over it in his campaign to have Wayne removed as the commanding general of the army and invents a variety of lies that Wilkinson has stolen the payroll, that, I'm sure that Wayne has stolen the payroll, who had done a variety of things, and he, Wilkinson, is pushing for Wayne to be court-martialed by George Washington. And Washington actually considered a court-martial, but Wayne died uh, of a stomach illness and was no longer in Wilkinson's way, and Washington, towards the very, very talented administration, agrees that Wilkinson is the last man standing, and I'm going to leave him as the commanding general of the army. Hmm. Okay. Commanding general of the army. Is he, what is he, like 30 or so by this point? Is that about By this time, he's like 34, 35. Okay, 34. Okay. And again, his only exposure to combat was, you know, when under Wayne, when they successfully defeated the army at the mm -hmm. Battle of, uh, the, the Indians at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. That's the yeah. only time he's been in combat. Okay. Yeah. And now he's commander in chief. That's incredible rise to power there. So I know that he was also around this time. He was involved with Aaron Burr, the Aaron Burr conspiracy. Is that about the same time period? Yes. That's about 10 years later. Oh, that long. Okay. I see. Every day you're under attack, whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever-expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP, or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi-layered defense strategy. Silent offers you the protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi-shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silence lineup includes everything from signal blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected, undetectable, untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from Silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. So during this period of time, Wayne's, I'm sorry, Wilkinson is now the commanding general. John Adams is now the president of the United States. And Wilkinson basically reaches a deal with Adams. He, he basically tells Adams, look, you're under attack. You, Adams, are under attack all the time by people who are lying about you. I'm under attack by people who are all the time are lying about me. We're both victims of the calumny of our enemies. You should ignore any bad things you hear about me. <laughs> wow. So during the four years of Adams' administration, he basically ignored any bad information that came to his attention about Wilkinson. That's a very easy out for him then in that case. And I assume it was probably true that people were saying bad things about him all the time. Yes, absolutely. So the two of them basically, you know, survived the Adams administration 
And now Thomas Jefferson gets elected in 1800. And Jefferson has no background at all in, in, in the military. Henry Dearborn is his Secretary of War. And they basically have no love for Wilkinson. So basically, they'd send him for two years out to do survey parties, to, to map out where the Natchez Trace is going to be, to negotiate treaties with the Indians. But Jefferson really didn't care at the time about the military and didn't care about Wilkinson. So it was a good opportunity to get Wilkinson out of everybody's hair and just basically ignore the guy. Where that changes is in 1804, Wilkinson had a relationship with Aaron Burr that went back to them both serving together in the Continental Army up in Canada in 1776. So he was a social acquaintance of Aaron Burr's. Burr helped get well, Wilkinson's kids into Princeton, but he didn't have a real solid political connection with Burr. But by 1803, Jefferson decides we need to buy New Orleans and ships diplomats over to, to France to basically say, look, the, the uh, Spanish are talking about shutting down the port again. Spain and France are engaged in relationships where basically France is now taking over New Orleans. And so Jefferson decides he's going to go and buy New Orleans. And when he sends a, a, a delegation over to deal with Napoleon, Napoleon surprises the delegation and says, for $15 million, I'll sell you the entire Louisiana territory. We'll throw in everything west of the Mississippi. And so Jefferson's negotiators recognize the deal when they, when they see it. And in December of 1803, there's going to be a formal ceremony turning over the Louisiana Territory to the United States. Wilkinson, as a commanding general of the Army, happens to be in the neighborhood. So he's made one of the formal U.S. commissioners to accept the turnover of the Louisiana Territory to the United States. Mm. And so by, by this time, Wilkinson has sort of chilled on his relationship with the Spanish but sees this as an opportunity to negotiate a $200,000 bribe from the Spanish to go back on the Spanish payroll. My gosh. And in return for being put on the Spanish payroll, he says, look, I will give you up-to-date information on what Thomas Jefferson is doing. I will take your requirements and go and ask Thomas Jefferson questions that I will feed to you that will give you information on what the United States' intentions are. And one of the things that you should be aware of, Spain, is that Thomas Jefferson intends to send out exploration parties into the Louisiana Purchase to explore the border with Spain. And you need to send armed troops out to capture or kill these exploration parties. And so one of those parties was the Lewis and Clark expedition. Wilkinson tells the Spanish, this is where they're going to be leaving from. This is where they're going to be going. You need to send out cavalry to capture and, or kill Lewis and Clark. And so, this, and so the Spanish tried that. And unfortunately, it was a big country. They didn't find them. But there were two other expeditions that Jefferson sponsored that Wilkinson did indeed hit the Spanish off. And the Spanish was able to turn back those other two expeditions. So by this time, Wilkinson is now an active agent of Spain. It's now 1804, and Jefferson is going to be going up for his second term and wants to be rid of Aaron Burr. 
But needs Aaron Burr, who by this time has killed Alexander Hamilton. He's the vice president of the United States. He's wanted for murder. But Jefferson is engaged in a campaign against Federalist judges that have been appointed by President Adams. And so he has one particular federal judge impeached by the House. They're going to be tried by the Senate. And he needs Aaron Burr as the president of the Senate to deliver a guilty verdict. And so Burr basically comes along and says, okay, I'll deliver a guilty verdict, but I need things in return from you. I need my son-in-law to be made uh, the secretary of the Louisiana Territory. And I need my good friend James Wilkinson now to be made the governor of the Louisiana Territory. And so Jefferson now makes Wilkinson, he's the commanding general, he's also the governor of the Louisiana Territory. Burr is not able to deliver on his side of the bargain. He re resigns as, as the vice president, and he needs a job. And so he starts thinking about working with Wilkinson to once again have the Western states perhaps separate from the United States and become a new country under Aaron Burr. <laughs> and either this would be a new country under Aaron Burr or Aaron Burr, working with Wilkinson as the commanding general, would somehow invade Spain and seize Spanish Mexico and Spanish Florida. And so the two of them are actively working on a plan to basically undercut the Spanish government and maybe perhaps separate the Western states. To this day, what historians don't know exactly what Burr was doing because he told different stories to different people in order to get different people to support him. Mm. And so they're getting very close now to an invasion of Spain and Wilkinson decides and I think my bread is better buttered with Thomas Jefferson. And he double crosses Burr and says, I've discovered this massive conspiracy by the former vice president to separate the Western states, to invade Mexico. And I can provide you with all of this evidence showing that is going on. And so Wilkinson falsifies a variety of documents, obviously erasing his involvement in this. And he basically provides Jefferson with whatever Jefferson wants to be able to bring Aaron Burr to trial for treason. Incredible, incredible. And the, and the other side of the deal was Thomas Jefferson, who was cool on Wilkinson, will basically now be Wilkinson's greatest fan. And whenever there's adverse information that comes out against Wilkinson, Jefferson will do whatever he needs to do to quash that information, be it coming from Congress or from other people, to support Wilkinson as the loyal commanding general of the U.S. Army. Hmm. Yeah, unbelievable. He's, so he's ultimately his, his greatest benefactor of his life in that case. Exactly. Yeah. And so when Burr goes to trial in Richmond in 1807, John Marshall is the presiding judge at the trial. Wilkinson is the government's chief witness. And he comes off terribly. He's almost indicted himself for treason. Because he's just, he can't cover up the fact that he was an active participant in this. When the case actually finally goes to trial, Marshall issues legal rulings to narrowly defining what is treason. And Aaron Burr is found not guilty of treason by the jury in two separate trials. Wilkinson, one of the trials is called, he purges himself. He takes the Fifth Amendment repeatedly, but he has carried out his part of the bargain 
and is now is Jefferson's general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a, a point that I wanted to go over for a moment is the, the definition of treason, because his behavior was treacherous, but the laws were quite different, you know, at this very early time period. So he was not actually legally betraying the United States for most of this of his time as the commander. Is that roughly correct? That's absolutely correct. Thank you. So treason is one of the few crimes that's defined under the Constitution and is basically providing aid and comfort to an enemy of the United States or taking up arms against the United States. And so at the time, Spain was not an enemy. We hadn't declared war on them. So his relationship with the Spanish wasn't providing aid and comfort. And they were never able to prove that Aaron Burr was engaged in an armed rebellion against the United States. They just couldn't prove it. Hmm. And so since the Constitution narrowly defines treason and John Marshall narrowly defined treason, Burr is found not guilty. Okay. And I assume that he and Wilkinson are enemies for life at the, after that? Well, now, by this point, you're absolutely right. You know, Burr has been double-crossed by Wilkinson. And, and, but for the most part, following his acquittal here, Burr disappears from the scene. He heads off to Europe to avoid his creditors and really ends being any kind of an important political position in the United States. But Wilkinson, at this point, has pissed off a number of congressmen who saw what he testified like and these congressmen decide to start putting pressure on Jefferson to investigate Wilkinson. On top of that, Wilkinson's business partner, who, I'm sorry, let me go back. Wilkinson's cover story for receiving all of this money from Spain was, hey, when I was a businessman back in 1787, I traded goods with the Spanish, and they were just slow on paying me. So here it is, 1804, 1805, I'm still getting money from the Spanish, but it's not bribe money, it's left over from the money they should have paid me back in 1787, 1789. Mm -hmm. so, so one of Wilkinson's business partners has a falling out with Wilkinson, and he's got Wilkinson's books, and he knows this is a delayed payment. He knows it bribes from Spain. And by this time, his business partner is a delegate to the House of Representatives. And so he generates sufficient pressure on, on uh, President Jefferson to put together a military court of inquiry. And the purpose of the court of inquiry is to gather facts. Well, this court of inquiry was basically an opportunity for Wilkinson to call whatever witnesses he wanted to cover up all of the crimes that he's committed. So he presents perjured testimony. He presents doctored books. He presents perjured testimony from the Spanish and quite frankly, Wilkinson and the Spanish for that time period engaged in pretty credible spy tradecraft. They mm -hmm. used ciphers, they used cutouts, they used cover stories, and the Spanish basically promised Wilkinson that, hey, if we're ever called upon from the United States government to talk about our relationship, we'll lie through our teeth. All of the written records that we have of all the oaths and all the money we paid you, we'll move all that stuff offshore where the Americans will never find it. And so that cover-up worked very, very well until the early 1900s when American scholars finally got access to those books and records of the Spanish of all the bribes and the oaths that, that Wilkinson had made with them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I'm forgetting his name right now, but Wilkinson's handler in the Spanish, his Spanish handler, I was very impressed by that guy. I mean, he comes off as a very cagey and perceptive kind of guy that, you know, kind of used Wilkinson to the fullest, his fullest capabilities, in my opinion. Absolutely. There are two people. Was, his business partner was a guy by the name of Daniel Clark, and the, and the other person was a guy by the name of Thomas Power, who was a Spanish official. And the trouble was, later on, they're called upon to testify against Wilkinson, but for years they've been denying that Wilkinson was a spy. They lied through their teeth for many, many years until they both eventually flipped. The trouble was they had severe credibility problems because for years they had denied in a variety of proceedings that Wilkinson was a Spanish spy. Mm -hmm. So this court-martial ultimately does not go like the prosecutors want it to go. I take it. Well, the prosecutor was basically asleep. He basically said, <laughs> I didn't know I had to call witnesses. Oh, and my Wilkinson gosh. And says, I got no problem. I got plenty of witnesses to call. And so he calls a oh. variety of witnesses. And the court of inquiry finds that Wilkinson was not a Spanish spy. They publish their findings. And then Wilkinson allowed to steal the record of the proceedings. So... <laughs> A few years later, when Congress goes along and says, hey, we want to look at what you people found, they can't find a record because it was stolen by Wilkinson. My gosh. Unbelievable. This guy, he is ambitious. I will give him that. He's got a lot of chutzpah. Oh, absolutely. And by the <laughs> time, he's got Thomas Jefferson in his back pocket, and, Wilkinson, and, and Jefferson had no hesitancy in doing whatever needed to be done to live up to his side of the bargain that, you know, Wilkinson was not going to be found liable for being an, uh, an ally of Burr or an agent of Spain. My gosh. Okay. And if I recall correctly, Howard, didn't he, over the course of his time with Spain, he received something like $38,000 from them, I he think. Received, Is that about right? He received, uh, in today's money, almost a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Which makes him one of the highest paid spies in American history. Right, right. I mean, there are people now, I mean, we've talked about cases where modern spies have received less than 38,000, you know, and he would got that 225 years ago. That's pretty incredible. Well, the Russians and the Chinese are notoriously cheap. Yeah. So they don't pay a lot. The, the, the best state spy was Robert Hansen, who was a senior FBI official, was an mm -hmm. agent of Russia. He got over a million bucks, but he basically held a record for probably getting more money than anybody else as a right. spy. Right. Absolutely. But Wilkinson did very, very well for himself. So is that, I mean, after this court-martial, does that mean that Wilkinson essentially got away with everything over the course of his life? Well, he got away with everything up to that point. And the trouble was that in, in late 1809, Wilkinson is told to take the United States Army down to New Orleans and defend New Orleans against a potential invasion by Great Britain. The United States was afraid that Great Britain was going to be invading New Orleans and see, uh, our relationship with Great Britain w w was bad. The British are kidnapping American sailors and impressment on the high seas. They have embargoes that are in place. We put counter embargoes are in place. And Jefferson finds out that, uh-oh, it looks like in late 1808, I'm sorry, that I think that the Great Britain is going to invade the Mississippi River and seize New Orleans. So, again, the army is expanded, and Wilkinson is told, take the army down to New Orleans and defend New Orleans against a potential British invasion. Well, the invasion never takes place, and the problem was that the most experienced officer who was used to commanding troops down in the lower Mississippi was Wilkinson. He did virtually nothing 
to prepare the army for being deployed in the summertime in the swamplands around New Orleans. When he gets down to New Orleans, most of the troops are engaged with wine, women, and song in the city of New Orleans, and he decides we need to take the army up, move them out of New Orleans to a place where they won't be tempted by wine, women, and song. And so Wilkinson picks a swamp south of New Orleans as the place where the army is going to be housed. And at the time, Wilkinson's first wife passed away a few years before, and he starts courting the daughter of a former senior Spanish official who may have had an ownership interest in this swamp where Wilkinson decides Mm, to house the army. And so while they're there, the army is dying in droves from malnutrition because the contractor selling food to Wilkinson has bribed Wilkinson to look the other way while he delivers bad food. There's, there's disease, there's poor sanitation, and over one quarter of the entire United States Army dies under Wilkinson's command because of disease and malnutrition, because Wilkinson refuses to move the troops out of the swamp outside New Orleans. And so now Madison is the, is the uh, president of the United States. His secretary of war is a fellow by the name of Eustace, who is also a doctor, really doesn't know much about the military, but he knows about disease. And he's absolutely frustrated that Wilkinson won't move the troops out. And so finally, Wilkinson is given a direct order, move the troops to Memphis, Tennessee. And so, as I said, by the time they get the troops out of New Orleans and out of the swamps, uh, one quarter of the entire United States Army has died or deserted. Yeah, Howard, we talk a lot about, you know, a variety of betrayals on this podcast, but that is a level of cold heartedness that is kind of hard to overcome, really. Just sentencing your men to death like that so that you can curry favor with your father-in-law and skim some off the top with the contractors and all that. It's unreal. Absolutely. And so... By this time, Wilkinson is relieved of command, and the decision is, should we court-martial Wilkinson, okay, for doing this? And so Wilkinson sits down with Madison's Secretary of War, and basically, and this this is what my research has concluded, is that Wilkinson decides, look, Madison is a good friend of Thomas Jefferson. If it appears that I've done all these terrible things, It will make Madison look bad. It will make Jefferson look bad. It will make uh, John Adams look bad. It will make George Washington look bad. So let's put together a court-martial that covers all of the allegations that have been brought out against me for the last 20 years, and let me help draw the charges that predate my time in the military. You can't charge someone under the Article of War for something they did as a civilian. Hmm. Yet that's what the charges against Wilkinson included, the period of time when he was a businessman with Spain. So they included all of the alleged bribes he had taken from Spain over the years. It included all of the treachery with, uh, with Aaron Burr. And another thing here is, is that at the time, the statute of limitations under the Articles of War was two years. We're talking misconduct here that hmm. goes back almost 20 Yet Wilkinson is the one that is pressing for a broad set of charges because he knows he can guarantee that a military jury will find him not guilty. 
And this will basically wipe the slate clean for 20 years of misconduct by Wilkinson. And Madison agrees to that kind of a charging document. Hmm. That's a bold play on his part, but he has skated out of responsibility so many times in the past. I guess he was extremely confident. Well, and he helped pick the jury. Wilkinson recommended <laughs> officers that would sit on the jury. He had sitting jury members that got up in the trial and testified on his behalf. Oh, my gosh. Unreal. So there was no way that this jury was going to convict James Wilkinson of anything. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutor, and this is, again, the same prosecutor who handled the court of inquiry, he was so disgusted that at a couple of times he decides, I'm out of here. I'm quitting and I'm not coming back <laughs> because it's a, it's a sham. And he was basically told he was a political appointee. You'll do as you're told. My gosh. So that, yeah, that jury, the, the court-martial of Wilkinson took place for a, a three-month period of time here in Frederick. Among the people who defended Wilkinson was Roger Tawney, who later went on to be the Supreme Court. He helped write the Dred Scott decision. And at the time under the Articles of War, your defense attorney couldn't say anything. They could You could suggest to Wilkinson questions to ask, but Wilkinson was the only one who could make objections or hmm. could cross-examine witnesses. Wilkinson was a pretty good trial lawyer. But when you've, you've had the charges written, jury already picked on your side, and you know the fix is in, his acquittal for doing this was pretty well guaranteed right from yeah. the start. Yeah, clearly. Mine. What a travesty of justice that was. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I did was, as a trial attorney, I looked at the court-martial transcript, which I found the actual, and I thought, if I were going to try this case, how would I do it? And the, the prosecutor was just terrible. Uh, Wilkinson would tear apart the credibility of the government witnesses. The prosecutor would do nothing to help rehabilitate the credibility of the witnesses. A lot of the people were, didn't even have to testify. They basically submitted written statements. And so there was no opportunity to challenge the credibility of Wilkinson's witnesses because they weren't testifying in person. They were basically submitting depositions. Mm, okay, I see. And so the depositions is... were filled with, with perjury. He submitted all <laughs> these phony business records. And when the government called people like Thomas Power, the former Spanish agent, Wilkinson cross-examining the living daylights out of power because Wilkinson, I'm sorry, Power had repeatedly in the past stated that Wilkinson wasn't a spy. And one of the court reporters basically thought that Power was drunk the day he testified, and Wilkinson just tore him up. Oh, my gosh. A foreordained conclusion then, I guess. Absolutely. Wow. So he ultimately is found not guilty of any of the charges. Does that mean that he essentially skated clear other than being judged by history at that point? That's, that's correct. And that judgment of history didn't take place until almost 100 years later when we finally found those Spanish records. Hmm. My gosh, yeah. So he had a legacy, a century of his legacy was untarnished then mostly. Correct. I see. Actually, Howard, one of the my favorite things about your book is how you begin every chapter with these quotes that just absolutely lambasted him completely. And he was so hated by so many people, even though it may have not kind of percolated up through history, you know, to us until you wrote this book, at least. Well, it was a lot of fun finding those quotes because there were so many of them. <laughs> yeah. I had to go through a careful editorial process figuring out, all right, what, what's appropriate under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. Honestly, it was a great touch. So Thank you. is that kind of the end of his career, at least? I mean, is, is he shuffled out of the military? Does he retire with honor? Like what happens to him? 
so now by this point, he's found not guilty, and those uh, charges are proved by Madison in February of 1812. Well, 90 days later, we now have the War of 1812. So Madison was looking for an excuse to go to war? That's correct. I mean, for a number of years, Great Britain had impressed sailors. They were basically kidnapping American sailors at sea. They engaged in a series of embargoes. We engaged in counter-embargoes. And in June of 1812, Madison asked Congress to declare war. And so Madison had basically very few people who were capable generals, not that Wilkinson was a capable general, but for the most part, the the senior leadership of the United States Army were political appointees that basically got their jobs because of political stature and not any kind of commandability. And Wilkinson had, at this point, 30 years command experience with the Army. Mm -hmm. He shipped down to New Orleans to defend against British invasion of New Orleans. And the trouble is the people of New Orleans hated Wilkinson. (laughs) And so as a result of that, Wilkinson, while he's in New Orleans, leads the only successful campaign that the United States had in the War of 1812 that resulted in territory being added to the United States. He operate, hmm. He basically goes out and seizes Mobile, Alabama from the Spanish. And the purpose of that was that he wanted to grab Mobile before the British grabbed Mobile. So mm-hmm. without firing a shot, he engages in seizing Mobile, Alabama, and that's how Mobile became part of the United States. Wow, okay. But, the, so his... but because the people of New Orleans hated him so badly, he's told you're going to be transferred to the northern campaign where you're going to be leading an invasion of Canada. And so he slowly makes his way from Mobile, Alabama, to the Canadian border, and he doesn't get to Canada until late August of 1813. And so there's basically two maxims of land warfare that I think that everyone should remember. One was, as Eisenhower said, don't get involved in a land war in Asia. (laughs) And the second is, don't invade Canada in the fall. (laughs) And so Wilkinson gets up to Lake Ontario. The trouble is that the new Secretary of War is a guy by the name of John Armstrong. And Armstrong thought he was a general. He was from New York. He had married well. He had been a senator from New York. And and Armstrong decides that, hey, I really want to lead the invasion. Wilkinson, you'll follow my orders. And if we successfully invade Canada, I will become the next president of the United States. Well, the trouble is both Armstrong and Wilkinson get sick the moment they arrive uh, at Army headquarters in on Lake Ontario, and Armstrong disappears. He decides, I'm out of here, and Wilkinson is basically told, gather up the troops and head down the St. Lawrence River. The goal here is you're going to capture Montreal. And there was another part of the American army that was under Wilkinson's command that was going to head then down Lake Champlain, down the Richelieu River, and they were also going to invade then Montreal. The trouble is Wilkinson and this other general whose name was Wade Hampton hated each other. And so Hampton didn't want to follow Wilkinson's orders. And shortly after crossing the border into Canada, Hampton's army is defeated by a, a Canadian scratch unit of militia. Hampton outnumbers them four to one. 
and he decides, given the fact that I lost this battle, I'm going to turn around and head back to New York, and I'm going to end my portion of the invasion. Hmm. So Wilkinson is now sick. He has 7,000 troops in 300 open boats that are sailing down the St. Lawrence River in the now mid-fall. There's a hurricane that hits this fleet. There's snow that hits the fleet. There's bad supplies that, once again, we're dealing with incompetent and corrupt uh, quartermasters. And so finally, towards the early part of November of 1813, Wilkinson is too sick to leave his ship. The American army is defeated again by a, a British force that's like one quarter of the American army's side. And Wilkinson decides, I'm going to take the American army back across the border into New York, where they're basically told, build a camp in the middle of winter and do the best you can to feed yourself and keep warm. So this is basically a frozen version of New Orleans, where mm. many of the American troops are, are now dying of exposure, of bad food. Wilkinson is again relieved from command, and he's going to be court-martialed again for his incompetent leadership of uh, the 1813 invasion of Canada. Now, that court martial doesn't take place until 1815 at the end of the war because they don't have enough officers that can sit on a court martial. Once again, Wilkinson is helping to pick the jurors. Most of the jurors that sit on the court martial testify on Wilkinson's behalf. But, but the change in this point is, is by late 1815, most of the generals that are, are senior American leaders at the time recognize that Wilkinson's time in the army is over. There's going to be yeah. a downsizing. There's been a panel of officers that have been picked to downsize the army. Most of those officers on the panel can't stand Wilkinson. So I think just as an accommodation, they don't convict Wilkinson, but they know Wilkinson's time is going to be cut short. He's going to be removed administratively. And that's what happens in June of 1815. Despite being begging to keep a job, some job anywhere, Wilkinson said, I have no income. And Madison says, basically, our time with you is over. You're out of the army. So oh. at the time, there were no pensions. Wilkinson didn't have a pension, and he needs money. So the way he decides he's going to make money in 1815 to 1816 He's going to write his memoirs. And by writing his memoirs, he's going to accomplish two things. Number one, he's going to settle scores with all his political enemies. <laughs> and then number two is he's hopefully going to make some money. The three volumes of his memoirs are just terrible. One of the people I mentioned in the book who reviewed it basically said it's one of the most mendacious books ever published in American history. <laughs> and so they don't sell particularly well. And he decides, well, the only other thing I can do is I'm going to purchase a sugar plantation on the Mississippi south of New Orleans and go there with my new wife and my new children that they have. And he opens up a sugar plantation where he grows sugar and he engages in, in, in trading enslaved persons. And mm. once again, he is not doing well. And so he decides to fall back on one of the things that he knows well, and that's international intrigue. <laughs> and so by 1821, Mexico has succeeded in obtaining their independence from Spain. And Wilkinson heads off to Mexico City in the hopes that he will be named the United States minister to Spain. 
The trouble is, by this point, James Monroe is now president of the United States, and he hates Wilkinson. At some point earlier, he said, when, when Jefferson offered him a job where he would be under Wilkinson's command, Monroe said, I'd sooner be shot than taking a position under James <laughs> wow. Wilkinson's command. So there was basically no way that Wilkinson was going to be uh, given a position as minister by the United States. And he basically dies in obscurity in Mexico City in 1825. Mm. He's eventually put in, in, in a cemetery. They remove his remains to an unmarked grave. And so to this day, nobody knows where Wilkinson's remains are. Oh, man. Wow, that is a ignominious end yep. to his story. Hmm. Incredible. So, and like you said, his true legacy didn't really come out for over a hundred years at that point. Right. So he was, was he somewhat well-remembered? You think, I mean, people were taking, you know, his, were people taking his memoirs at face value to a certain extent or, or what? Most of the people who read his memoirs couldn't stand them. That they they are incredibly yeah. poorly written. They don't follow ah, any well. logical order. It's the war as viewed by James Wilkinson. Okay. And so a variety of people he attacked, a variety of people attacked him back. And so it was not in any way a compelling story. And for the most part, people just wanted to forget who James Wilkinson hmm. was. Winfield Scott, who couldn't stand Wilkinson, Wilkinson had him court-martialed for a period of time. He becomes the commanding general. So he's more than willing to erase any record of Wilkinson hmm. from the army. But Wilkinson, during the first 40 years of the Army's existence, was the longest-serving commanding general. He commanded longer than anybody else during the first 40 years of the Army's existence. Amazing. And he had, like, so little to show for that and so few reasons, really, to keep him in power other than political expediency, it seems. Exactly. You know, or many of the, the presidents at the time, Adams, Jefferson, really didn't care all that much about the, the military. So the fact that Wilkinson was incompetent, they weren't looking for a lot of competence. And as long as he kept them out of the headlines, they were happy. It was only later on where his involvement with Burr that he could have become an embarrassment. But when he becomes Jefferson's general and agrees to perjure himself to, to, to frame uh, Burr, Jefferson was more than willing to put up with it. Ah, that's unfortunate. He's What a stain on our early history as a, as a new country. Absolutely. Very sad stuff. But he is a fascinating character. I mean, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading at multiple points throughout the book. That's for certain. Well, and, and you know, he was involved in, again, he was drawn to intrigue. And so he mm -hmm. was involved with Gates and trying to get rid of Washington. He was involved with Burr and trying to, you know, divide the country in half. He worked for the Spanish against American interests. He compromised the Lewis, you know, tried to compromise the Lewis and Clark expedition. All of this was done because he wanted to make money. None of it was done based on any kind of ideology. Yeah, what a, a mercenary figure he was and so purely self-interested. It's amazing. So, Howard, this has been really fascinating. I, I love this story, and I'm really glad we had the chance to talk about it. What are you working on now that the book is published? Do you have another book you're going to work on now? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kicking around a couple of different ideas. I had never written a history book. You know, again, my background was in the law, and I wanted to be able to write a book that would be accepted by a popular audience, but also be accepted by historians. 
And so the, mm -hmm. I wanted to make certain it was properly researched, properly footnoted. And one of the problems I ran into in writing this book was when I started the research before the pandemic hit. But then in the middle of doing the research, libraries shut down, universities had shut down. And so much of the research that I had to do for this book was online. There's a broad variety of online resources. There's something called Founders Online, where the Library of Congress is categorized and put online almost all the correspondence of the founding fathers. And so wading through thousands upon thousands of letters was interesting. But then finally, when the pandemic lifted, I was able to go out to a number of places like the Library of Congress and the uh, Chicago History Museum. So I enjoyed doing all that research, but I haven't come up with another subject yet that has caught my interest yet that I'm willing to put the time in. I'm still thinking about it. Okay, that certainly makes sense. And I know this was an incredible effort on your part. I read it in, in three or four days, but I know it took you a heck of a lot longer than that to do all the research and writing. But you know, I certainly appreciate the effort on your part. Yeah, it was like a six-year project, and I, I enjoyed every minute of doing it. Just don't know if I could, if I could do it again. But if that is that interested me, I probably would do it. But but I haven't found one yet. Okay, yeah, I can understand that. I certainly hope you do. It is a very compelling story, and there might be another compelling and mostly unremembered or untold story out there as well. Well, and, and that's what made it half interesting was shedding lights on, on an area of history that really the light hasn't been shown on in the past. And that was part of, quite frankly, the enjoyment of doing it, of providing, of providing some sort of counterpoint to the traditional view of Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson, knowing that yeah, they weren't always right. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit that I kind of see them, you know, one dimensionally, you know, as the infallible founding fathers. I have to admit, so it is It is good to see a, another side and get a fuller perspective of what was really going on then. So, Howard, do you have like a, a public profile of any sort if people want to look you up after this? You have a website or social media pages, anything like that, if the listeners want to connect with you? I haven't done that. The, the, the best way is through my email address, which is howardwcox2 at gmail.com. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, we'll share that out if you don't mind. I might all. get some questions. Okay. Well, fantastic, Howard. I really appreciate your time and I'm really glad I had a chance to read the book. For those of you who want to pick it up afterwards, it is American Traitor, General James Wilkinson's Betrayal of the Republic and Escape from Justice by Howard Cox. So thanks again for your time, Howard. This is a great talk and a, and a great story as well. Thank you very much, Justin. Take care. Take care now. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.